And welcome to Jonathan Witt's Health Hour. This is not Jonathan Witt, believe it or not. I am his slightly better looking, slightly younger, a little bit more overweight twin. My name is Adam Hirschman. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam H. Mann with two N's. And we are speaking about the importance of pornography in, as a treatment modality in chronic conditions like type 1 diabetes mellitus. That should get the ratings up. No, we are speaking EMS. And I've got a guest here with me today. Uh, that is a an advanced life support paramedic by the name of Derek Ramsey from Emergymed. Derek, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adam. And we're going to be talking about EMS. So, if you'd like to give us a shout on 0861-555-189 or get in touch with us on WeChat ID Cliff Central, uh, we can answer any of your questions. Uh, if you've got any other health-related questions, I can't guarantee I'll give you a legitimate answer, but I will try my damnedest. Um, but right now, let's speak about EMS. Derek, what is EMS? Well, <laughs> uh, EMS, it's, it's, it's pretty multifunctional. When they talk about EMS, you're talking emergency medical services in essence, but also it, it can be a broader spectrum into emergency services per se. So you're looking at a combination of fire as well as ambulance. Okay, um, so the main thing I wanted you to say there is that you're not a taxi because <laughs> – the biggest issue that I face is at 3 o'clock in the morning, and this actually happened to me last night. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I have been awake for 30 hours, so if it's a little bit more crazy than usual, you know who to blame, the Department of Health. Um, but I had a patient come in at 3 o'clock this morning uh, to my casualty who basically rocked up in an ambulance, and I said, what's the problem? No, I've got back pain. Okay, cool, no problem. How long have you had it? 16 months. So why did you come with an ambulance? I don't have the taxi. And I think that's a big issue. I think like in this country specifically, we're facing the monumentous task of having people who don't have access to our services. So, I mean, in your experience, have you found people inappropriately contacting you as an EMS service provider in the past? No, 100%. Uh, total abuse of the system from time to time, especially those who don't have transport, um, those who don't have access to transport. You know, they'll have a, a chronic illness for the last two, three weeks and on the night, choose Bob, it'll be the coldest night, <laughs> the heaviest rain. You're in the middle of watching uh, an uh, overrated movie and they'll call us out. But you know what, that's part of the course. That's part of being an EMS. Um, it's not ideal, but unfortunately, abuse is there. And we love being abused. So, I mean, you, you were saying that emergency medical services in a larger setting, it includes um, fire and rescue. So, I mean, what is the difference then between your emergency medical services like your ambulance uh, services and your um, fire service, so your provincial fire. Like, what is the the main functional difference? Uh, do we have any private fire, or is it a, specifically a government-run thing? Um, what's the difference? Well, it's pretty much all government-run from a fire point of view, and in conjunction with that, through the department or the Hating Department of Health, they've run ambulance in conjunction with fire, um, usually running out of the same station. And in a, in a second tier, you've got the private ambulance service. Um, which is very uh, almost client-focused. They should be servicing the, the medical aid um, industry. And in, in essence, the government should be then servicing the non-medical aid. Um, so they're pretty much running the same. Unfortunately, the equipment, the level of care, the expertise, the qualifications, not always the same. I'm not saying it's everywhere, but majority across the board, the guys in the government, unfortunately, they, they – Poorly supplied, don't have the resources, don't have the and there's a the ability. There's a monumental demand. I mean, ah, as 100%. You say, it's, it's not just uh, EMS. We see the same in uh, in obviously government health institutions. 
Um, you know, if you if you look at the number of private uh, hospitals that medical aid patients can enjoy, um, you're probably looking at similar, if not more, beds available to private patients than to government patients, um, which is, you know, part of the uh, very, very difficult situation we're facing in this country as far as healthcare. But, I mean, what <clears throat> what is the, you know, primary kind of service provider then for the general public? Is that, is that going to be province? Is that metro? And is that a national thing, or is that specific to, to different provinces that run differently? Would you know anything about that? No, well, throughout the country, the, the provincial services are, in essence, responsible for all pre-hospital health care. But due to the lack of infrastructure, the lack of vehicles, and I think historically just, you know, poor response times, um, the private industry has kind of moved in, kind of supplied a better supply and a better from, from a bigger demand. Yeah. And they've kind of just, uh, I wouldn't say taken over, but they, they do a lot of the non-private um, work and end up doing a lot of the government's work. But in essence, the Department of Health is responsible for, for the masses. And in, I think in the, in the incident, they're actually not even supplying to the masses at the moment. So, I mean, when we talk about uh, private services, I mean, we, we're talking about your emerging meds, your NetCare 911s, your ER24s, um, all these various services that are, are providing something. But, but let me ask you, and I think this is a question that, that comes up quite often, um, and that is, Kind of what is the responsibility to a private service provider to a non-medical aid patient? So, in other words, if somebody drives past an accident and they don't know the phone number for province, they see there's, a, there's been a huge car accident, and they phone a private service provider, does the private service provider have to come? And if they come, do they have to transport the patient? I think within a public setting, most private services, you know, and this is my opinion, it's not the opinion of Cliff Central's show, not the opinion <laughs> of my employer, Emerging Med, it's my opinion. Got you. Is that we, we'd, we'd be bound to, to respond. It's in a public area. We don't know how bad it is. Once we arrive, you find that a lot of the people who aren't on medical aid and can't afford private health care actually say, we don't want you. Thanks for the help. We want the government service. In essence, the government service then should be called out and, and transport because it's, it's their request and, and they have the right to request what health provider they, they use. But um, I think most of the private services will respond, will go out, and then based on what they find when they get there, it depends on, on who transports. Okay, I got you. All right, let's – let's uh, and we've had a couple of questions I can see already on this. Let's talk about qualifications. So what are the different qualifications in EMS in South Africa, and what does it mean? And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards the famous paramedic term, <laughs> dare, I, dare I use it loosely. So who can call themselves a paramedic? Um, and let's talk about some of the qualifications that are out there. Well, historically, from a paramedic point of view, you had to be at an advanced life support level. But now everyone with a bandage and a <laughs> and a red light's a paramedic. You know? I am so, a first aider paramedic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone loves to be a paramedic. It's a great word. And But from a qualification point of view, there's pretty much four tiers at the moment. Well, there's multiple tiers, but there's the short course tier, which supplies three courses, which is the basic life support, intermediate and advanced life support, being BAA, AEA, and CCA. Then from a higher education point of view to the universities, You've got three tiers. The new one that's coming up, ECA, which hasn't been launched yet. It's a new initiative by, um, through the Department of Health, and we're hoping that the training actually turns out a lot better than some of the ECT training we've had to uh, endure. But then the second tier to that is ECT, and then obviously ECP, which is the higher paramedic level, um, which is your, your post-grad. So, so what is an ECT, emergency care technician? So what does that basically entail well, compared to an emergency care uh, practitioner? Well, 100%. So... They're sitting at a tier between the old ILS level and the new ECP level. So they're sitting on a two-year diploma, 
Um, their protocol is set to give more drugs than, than the actual ILS, but less drugs than the, the ECP. So it sits at a lower level than the ECP, but they are deemed to be an advanced life support practitioner from the limited drugs they do carry. And you must remember that all of this is set out to, to treat the masses. Got you. And, and this ECA, give us a bit of uh, info, like what, are we, what have we got to look forward to in the, in the health environment? What is an ECA? I have no cooking clue. Okay, awesome. I would love someone to send me uh, <laughs> a curriculum so at any, least. If you anyone know? knows what an ECA is, send us a photo so we know it exists. <laughs> um, but I think, look, you, we're using the terms BLS, ILS. BLS stands for basic life support. ILS stands for intermediate life support. And obviously, ALS is advanced life support. Um, and obviously, each one of these qualifications is limited to certain protocols. Um, and I mean, on that, I, I think what, what, what people need to understand is that probably the majority, 70, 80% of calls out there need basic life support management. They don't actually require an advanced life support intervention. So, I mean, what is it that a basic life support medic, and I use that word intentionally. Um, <laughs> and religiously. And religiously um, and ruthlessly. Um, what is it that a basic life support medic is entitled to do? So from a protocol point of view. Well, protocol point of view, they've got a very small scope of practice. Um, they can give oral glucose if you've got low blood sugar. Um, the old days we used to um, carry Antinox. I think at one stage they were they were doing the Antinox, but I think they've got well. Let's talk about why they've got used and abused. There, <laughs> There's nothing were... better than sucking a bottle Antinox, apparently. <laughs> no, look, I mean allegedly, from what I've heard, it's a fantastic way to pass the time. Um, but what Antinox is just for 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 our our listeners out there, Antinox is nitrous oxide, and it's it's basically um, a inhaled gas it's happy gas which uh, which dentists can use most dentists however will use a mix of about 10 10 20 or 30% to 70% oxygen whereas the EMS mix was a 50 50 which is a lot stronger um and uh, something that happened to me when I was but on my if you taped up the mask it'd be 100 100 <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and one thing that happened to me when I was training is that we um Intonox actually dissociates in cold temperatures so they they joke that you need to shake the cylinder, but when we were on our, our basic life support medic course, we didn't do that. So everyone went around the table having a couple of sucks to try it out. We were told to, to, to see what it was like. And I remember I was first and I was like, and I was like, nothing's happening. Next person goes, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Get to the 14th guy, takes two breaths and his head just falls straight on the desk. <laughs> put him on his side, put him on a SATS probe. Guy got pure nitrous oxide, no oxygen because we forgot to shake the cylinder up. So, okay, so that's your basic life support medic. So we said um, oral glucose, activated charcoal, administration of oxygen, and Entonox. And Entonox. Um, your intermediate life support medic or your AEA, what can they do that's now more senior or more, more um, advanced than your BA? So they pretty much can use an ECG where they can defibrillate in the event of a cardiac arrest. So welding, they can weld patients. They weld. <laughs> Different duelage and they weld. So pretty much cardiac arrest point of view, they can, they can defibrillate. They get to now put up an IV. Okay. Um, so they get to play with needles. 100%. Um, to, to do it, to either replace fluid or in the event of having to give a drug. Okay. Um, they can then give glucose IV for the, for the, you know, the, the hypoglycemic patient. They can give the activated charcoal and they can give aspirin as a precursor for the, for the, um, the chest pain patient. So as a preventative as well as, 
you know, um, actual management of that patient. Okay, and then uh, the big boys. So your advanced life support paramedic. Um, what kind of interventions are we talking about in a pre-hospital environment? What can they do that's uh, that's freaking awesome? Geez, freaking awesome. We get to stick fingers in places no one else can. <laughs> uh, and that's get, just we, at home, folks. Yeah. That's just at home. <laughs> what about on the road, Derek? <laughs> that's in the lounge. <laughs> uh, now we get to do a few more skills. Um, we get to do a couple of uh, invasive skills. We get to do intubation. So, in other words, we get to put tubes down to people's lungs to ventilate them. Those that aren't breathing in the event of uh, people unable to breathe for themselves. It's also part of, of airway management. We get to give multiple drugs for cardiacs as well as multiple drugs for analgesia. We get to give the old morphine, which a lot of the people down south love. You know, a lot of the fakers, <laughs> oh, I've got pain, want some morphine. Um, so it's quite a large scope. Um, we get to stick needles various places where no one else came, which is great. Get to do femoral, get to do external jugular, so in the neck, in the groin. So we've got quite a lot of scope quite of practice. like a needle in the groin, I must be honest. <laughs> 100%. Um, yeah, speaking from experience, it rocks. Um, okay, so that's your advanced life support paramedic. Now, here's a quick question. If you, heaven forbid, found yourself in trouble in a pre-hospital environment, would you want uh, a paramedic or a doctor treating you? It's, it's a difficult question. I've not been a politician yet. I know some very good doctors that, that work very well pre-hospitally. <clears throat> but majority <clears throat> of them um, should rather just drive them by. Okay, yet so again, that's an opinion of Derek Ramsey and not that of Cliff Central or my <laughs> player. <laughs> no, I got you. I mean, I think, and I think that's a, an important point is that, you know, having had EMS training as well as uh, formal medical training, I can I can speak from experience and say that, the average doctor hasn't been exposed to a pre-hospital environment. So, yes, legally, um, they have the right, I suppose, to supersede a paramedic on a scene when it comes to actual patient management. Um, that's if they don't get knocked over by the first car that drives past because they have absolutely no idea about scene safety and some of the things that go with um, a call in the pre-hospital environment. I think it's very important that somebody can be a, a specialized pulmonologist or a... Um, uh, an, an obstetrician or something but the last time they had to intubate a patient uh, in, in a resuscitation was probably a number of years ago and they're not doing it every day um, paramedics are trained with the focus on resuscitating and stabilizing a patient in the golden hour and what on that note what is the golden hour I mean w w is it like a rule that we live by as EMS practitioners or something we'd like to kind of use as a guide yeah, it's a guide. It's an old historical guideline, and Evan still speaks about the golden hour, and that's from the time of incident to get them into a facility that is appropriate to manage, you know, their injuries or condition within that hour. Um, we almost like to focus on the, the golden 30 minutes nowadays. Um, a lot of people don't need paramedics; they need surgeons, especially our high-impact MVAs, our patients' internal bleeding. So. We're trying to limit that time on scene. We're trying to limit it down to 30 minutes. For them to get definitive care, it'd like to be an hour. Some hospitals will get there, could take up to an hour before they get it, but others not. So, um, yeah, the golden hour, it's something that's been pretty much broadcasted across the world. It's, it's the golden standard of, of getting someone to hospital. Okay, and that's, and that's uh, you know, to, to just for the listeners out there, that's the time from injury, not the time from the medic arriving on scene. It's a yeah. time from injury to the time to definitive care. And definitive care is uh, formally being at a hospital environment. But 
in a trauma setting, we actually say definitive care is basically in a, in a theater yeah. um, with a trauma surgeon. A trauma unit um, with a theater with a absolutely. trauma surgeon. Um, now, what's the best part about being a paramedic? Besides the chicks, obviously all the chicks dig it. I mean, what... Uh, Dig it's not the word. Oh, really? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about you draw us a little picture? Whoa. No, okay. What, what is the best part? Like, what do you find? Is it is it a rewarding job? Is it driving at extremely high speeds? Um, you know, is it wearing a uniform? Uh, what would you say? What, what What is it for you? Uh, you know, I don't think there is any real highlight. It's, it's almost something that someone does just because they chose to do it. You know, this this whole thing about oh, wanting to save lives. You know, interview staff. So why are you in EMS? I want to save lives. Yeah, I mean, I get I get probably about uh, <laughs> really? eleven to twelve thousand emails, letters, and tweets a week asking me what's better than saving a life. And I always say to people, you know, a Coke Light with a slice of lemon is pretty good. Uh, a red velvet cupcake, um, any chocolate, basically any 100%. chocolate is better than saving a life. Um, watching TV with the missus, all of these things are better than saving a life. So it's quite a cheesy, and no, I'm joking. No, it's it quite, is. It's quite a cheesy thing. I'm here to save lives. But I mean, uh, in your experience, I mean, you've been in EMS for, 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 for quite some time. I mean, you, know, you look good. Don't get me wrong. You look Over great. Over 20 years. You look fantastic. Um, have you ever worked on the heli? Have you ever been involved in air transport uh, yep. services? I, I've been privileged enough to work on, on the um, heli service. Back in the days, just as Flight for Life was on the way out, Star was coming in, and then back onto obviously the, the neck air service. Got to do quite a lot of fixed wing flying as well, so I've pretty much what's been on like? the block. Like give us a, give us a, like what's different about um, heli versus fixed wing versus the road? Like what, what what's interesting about it? What do you enjoy? Well, I find the the road's great. The road you get more interaction with your patient, you can do more. You must remember, in a helicopter, you're sitting in a very confined space. Everything's got to be done before you get in the back. If you don't, you're going to be in poo-poo land, <laughs> and we've, we've we've seen that a couple of times. Um, in the back of a little BO105, you know, you let one off and everyone smells it. You know, including <laughs> the birds. It's a tiny environment. It's very hard to work in, um, and and you got to have skills to work in the back of the, you know of that of that machine. I don't think people actually realise how small the space we're talking about. I mean, I uh, I was uh, privileged to do the aviation healthcare provider course. Um, under Prof Boffard and uh, it's a fantastic course and we got to play around on the helis and uh, some of the various um, <laughs> fixed wing out there and I mean you know you, you think oh great I'm going to go on an airplane we're going to fly to uh, um, to Mozambique pick up a patient come back you get into the plane you stretch your arms out and you're touching both sides there is no toilet on board it's hot as hell when you take off it's basically like your angle of attack your takeoff it's not like Chilling Boeing 747 en route to Cape Town on Kalula. This is head for the sky at high speed. I mean, it, it has its moments, but there is an element of nausea and, and claustrophobia that kind of comes with that as well. Every takeoff, every flight, every landing. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, we call them little vomit comets. I mean, I remember working uh, the first time I was uh, um, privileged to have the heli land. It was in those days uh, Star, which came down Echo 1, which we all... Uh, absolutely adore um, and we were on an MVA out in the north and uh, we had a P1 that we were going to transport uh, we'll get to what the priorities are and we ended up <laughs> we ended up calling in the heli and I just remember seeing this thing come down they closed off the roads and there's no better way to describe it but to say that literally gods stepped out 
and took over a patient who was clinging on by his fingernails and took him away. And the relief I felt as a basic life support medic watching this ICU setting land, pick up this patient and go was unbelievable. So what's it like on the other side? No, sure, 100%. Um, you know, being in the heli, you need to be the biggest, the baddest, you know, the most experienced because at the end of the day, you're there to bail everyone else out. Yeah. You know, the guy, the parents on the road are calling the heli in essence because they need backup. So to get into that machine is, is no small feat. Um, and you know you need to have an, an an element of of experience. Awesome, and I see we've got a we've got a caller on the line, uh, Lungi from Santon. What can I do for you? Um, I just have a question. I had an injury, an ankle injury, like four years ago, and um, as of late, my ankle has begun acting up. Like, what would you suggest? What's the best way of taking care of the ankle so that I don't have these problems? Because I'm very active as well. Okay, so okay, first thing, don't call an ambulance. Yeah, I was about to say, don't <laughs> call EMS, okay? Um, but look, the thing you got to remember, look, uh, did you have surgery on it? Uh, was it? Were you diagnosed with any fractures or anything at the time? No, I was. Um, it was just a sprain at the time. But um, I've been training now for the KFM relay, and it seems to be acting up pretty hard. So I just uh, don't know what to do. All right, so 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 we're going to pretend you said the Cliff Central relay, um, but let's yeah. uh, let's let's chat about it for a sec. So what basically what um, what I recommend is is obviously with a soft tissue injury, um, especially yeah. when we go into winter when it gets cold, often you'll find that there's a little bit of fibrosis in that uh, in that zone where you probably tore uh, or had micro tears in the ligaments or tendons. Um, yeah. And what I highly recommend you actually do is is go take yourself off to a physio, let them work. Um, on that soft tissue, um, okay. stretch it out for you. Um, obviously, if you want to go and get yourself a couple of over-the-counter anti-inflammatories uh, yeah. or suppositories, just for shits and giggles, um, um, you're welcome to try that. Um, obviously, things like your arnica oils, your Voltaren gels, you can massage it in yourself before and after you train. Um, and yeah. then finally, you can always take yourself um, off to a pharmacy and get yourself a, an ankle brace. Often, a small amount of support actually goes a long way. I uh, hope I helped you answer your question, and thanks for giving us a shot. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers, Lungi. All right, thanks. Bye. She better not call her an ambulance. I swear, if there's if I if, can if, hear Lungi, her Lungi, if you go to an emergency room, <laughs> there will be bloodshed. There will be bloodshed. Um, look, I mean, back to the doctors and and, and paramedic thing. I mean, it's 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 quite hysterical that uh, that there's this kind of hatred, <laughs> to, for lack of a better term, between the two. Um. I mean, I know if I walk into certain government hospitals wearing an EMS vest, um, even if I've worked in that environment, even if I know the doctors, they don't look at me. They don't look me in the eye and see who I actually am. They just see that I'm EMS and they immediately don't want to chat. But I see we've got another call. So let's uh, let's hook it up with Zola. Zola, what can we do for you? Hey, my brother, I'm fine. How are you? Lacker man. Good to hear from you. What's up, bro? Hey, it's good, my brother. You know, I've got people there where I stay in the hood, my brother. Yeah, where, where's the hood, bro? you got to break it down for us. Yeah. Come on, we gangster. Where's the hood, y'all? We only know that the hood is in Soweto, my brother. Uh, There's no other hood but Soweto. Brother Bear, I was there for two years at, at, at Chris Honey Baragwanath. What can I do for you? Well, tell me what you want to know about your brothers in the hood. My brother, I've got three cousins who died in Chris Baragwanath Hospital. And uh, the service there is appalling, my brother, but that's besides the point. Shame, man. I, I, look, I know it's besides the point, and I, I, I know that it's a, it's an extremely overwhelmed beast of a hospital. So as as much as uh, people often say the service is terrible, I have to say that given 
the amount of patients that we see with the limited equipment that we have, uh, we really do try our best. But but break it down for me, Zola. What can I do for you? What's the what's the question? My brother, I had my fourth cousin also. He was stabbed at a base, my brother. Yeah. And then and then ambulance come, my brother. When ambulance arrive, my brother, they ask him questions and he can't even answer questions because he's dying, my brother. You know. So. But now when they ask him the questions, my brother. Uh, they, they found out that he's got no medical aid. The paramedic ambulance had to go away. They didn't even offer us any other help, my brother. So I, I don't know. It seems like uh, they don't know how to handle medicine these days. Look, I mean, I, I hear your point, and uh, you know, there's, you know, unfortunately in this world, there's, there's, there's paramedics and there's paramedics and there's services and there's services, and you may just have had a bad crew. I mean, the truth be told, if it was a private service or not, they would have. Um, offered to transport the patient regardless of whether or not he was on medical aid. And especially if he was a, a stab back or a stab chest in that setting, um, normally EMS medics jump at that opportunity because they enjoy the adrenaline of transporting. So, I mean, I, I would say to you that, uh, um, you know, you know, on behalf of EMS services, we apologize for the, the shoddy service. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, patients need to know their rights. And they need to know that uh, even if they're not on medical aid, they have the right to request transportation, even from a province, uh, uh, from a private service. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I got to break it down for you. At the end of the day, you got to tell your cousins to stop getting stabbed, man. I mean, this is this is. I think the deeper issue here is what's my going brother, on at it's home. The hood. It's the hood, my brother. You know, after two PRs, three PRs, everyone is happy, everyone is vibing. But <laughs> I, an, I, an emergency is, is an emergency, whether you have medical aid or not, my I agree. brother. I agree, Zola. Listen, thanks for the call, man. Please, no more stabbing. Hey, put put all your friends inside styrofoam wait, boxes and get rid of. I, yeah, where can it? I where can I apply for more medical aid? Where can you apply for more medical aid? I want you to Google medical aid, and uh, you'll get as much information as possible on that. All right, bro. Thanks for the call. Cheers. I'll get medical aid. You thanks. better get medical aid. You see, Derek's just jumping for joy. He's like, <laughs> medical aid. Where That's fantastic. Uh, just to quickly answer that question, at the end of the day, we. We all register our professions council. We've all got, you know, we've, we've got the responsibility to treat patients. Um, if they are critical, I challenge the person or the EMS crew not to transport and 100%. see what happens to you. No, so at 100%. the end of the day, if you are critical, and remember, critical in our eyes versus critical in the public's life, because everyone is dying, yeah. everyone is dead. You yeah. know, it's a very different story. But I'm sure if he, if he was in a bad way, he he would have been transported. Absolutely, and I mean, uh, um. On that note, I mean, what patients do you dread? What, which patients for you are the biggest nightmare? Like when you get the call, you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Childbirth. Childbirth. <laughs> the Obzangani patient. I have to agree with you wholehearted. I see we've got Lorraine on the, the, the line. Lorraine, what can we do for you? Um, I'm quite interested to, to just ask the, the paramedics, like how do they know when someone is um, faking when they say they want morphine? Because I had kind of a problem with that when I used to go to hospital and then um, I would like always ask for the morphine and then they would like always just give it to me. And then one time I had this like heart procedure, but it, it didn't mean that I needed like morphine because I wouldn't have had pain. But when I came out of the anesthetic, I was like, no, please, I need morphine. And they're like, uh, for what? I, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, so I want to know like 
how do they know? Lorraine, I think there's a deeper issue uh, here. Let's, <laughs> let's go to the core of this. Um, you seem to have a, an interest in morphine. <laughs> uh, Derek. <laughs> I did, eh? I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to lie. But I mean, you know, it was only when I went to hospital and I'd have procedures done, then I'd like, you know, over-exaggerate the pain. But how do you know? <laughs> Derek, you know, how do you know? You know, we, we pretty much work on the five philo- physiological signs of, of pain. And I can't tell you because every junkie in downtown is going to write them down. And when I arrive, they're all going to have those symptoms. But we do have five basic rules that we look at to see if you are in pain. And and your body responds to pain, you know, in in different ways. And and you as a person responds to pain in different ways. So we look at all those signs. We sum up the whole thing. We look at you as a person. We look at the history. And we also look, we at look the for response. the needle marks. We look at the needle marks. Uh, you know, we all have a, like a big WhatsApp group. We all communicate and go like, watch out for Lorraine. Lorraine loves morphine. Morphine. Um, no, I'm joking. No, no, I'm kidding, Lorraine. I'm kidding. You can come find me at Cliff Central. You know where the studio is. We'll sort you out. No, I'm joking. Um, the truth is, is that you must also remember there's a lot of other analgesias out there. Um, okay. So what we do is, is, you know, we'll gauge the level of pain based on what Derek was saying, which is the physiological response. Um, and we'll see if there's not an alternative before we go for opiates. Opiates being morphine are highly addictive. I mean, um, yeah. morphine, you know, heroin is just a stronger form of, form of morphine and, and codeine is just a, a lesser form, basically, of the same kind of drug. So okay. we do gauge it. Um, but as I said, uh, come on over, you qualify for a free ampule of morphine. <laughs> um, <laughs> take it easy. Please don't get hurt anymore and, 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 and lay off the dope, girl. We'll speak to you oh, soon. Oh, no. Awesome, guys. Cheers. Keep it up. Hey. Thanks, Keep up so. the good work you're doing. Cool, man. Cheers. So you hate the OBS and Ghani patients. Um, I hear you. I feel you on every level. I despise them with every cell in my body. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. The first time you see a baby born, you're like, oh, my God, the miracle of life. Second time, you're like, oh, my God, the miracle of life. Third time, you're like, oh, my God, kill me now. <laughs> and the fourth time, it's like, I'm off six for at least 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm literally out <laughs> around the corner vomiting. <laughs> yeah. Give me a shot. Um Ladies, look, don't get us wrong. We're not being sexist. I think uh, uh, childbirth is an incredible thing. But um, for the love of God, take it out the sunroof. Um, there are other ways to get a baby out. It doesn't have to, um, to, to ruin the baby passage in every possible way. So, which hospital do you love and which hospital do you hate? And, you, and this is okay. We, we, can, we can point fingers. This is Uncensored Radio. You're, you're welcome. And tell us why. Ah. Uh, Difficult question. Open, honest. I love unions, recess. Okay. Dig it. I'm not going to say the whole hospital. Okay. And that's surely based on the relationship I've had over years with Prof. Husson, Frank Plani, Prof. you know, all the, Dej, all, the, all the guys, all, the, new, all, the, all the, the trauma surgeons that have worked there. For sure. Um, to me, that's, that's, that's like the ultimate unit for me. And, and I'm loyal, whether it be biased or not, 100%. I I, just just before you go on to the one you hate, you know, let's keep it positive for two seconds. Um, I feel the same way about Millpark. So it's, it's it's the same group of trauma surgeons, unbelievable guys, um, academically on top form um, and talented with their hands beyond words. Um, and obviously we're talking about, you know, Joburg specific hospitals here, but, um, you know, Millpark and Union are actually the only two private level one trauma facilities in our area. Sure. Um, and it shows. And, and, you literally feel that if a, a patient is critical and hanging on um, by the by their fingertips, you're giving them the best possible chance. You get treated with respect there as as an EMS practitioner, um, and you watch the way they treat every patient with the highest focus and intention to save their lives. And I think. 
for us who work our butts off in a pre-hospital environment, it's fantastic to feel that that's continued rather than rocking up at one of the other hospitals where you become ignored for 25 minutes and you wonder why did I jump 33 red lights and put my life at risk getting this patient here just so that I could be kind of told to wait. So on that note, if you don't want to mention names, what kind of hospital do you hate if you don't want to mention names? I was about to say there's a whole lot of hospital managers sweating out there to yeah, see who's the like, worst one. <laughs> everyone's got what we call anal fib, anal fibrillation. <laughs> no. I know a few managers sweating right now. <laughs> um, I don't think I have a worst. I think every hospital is as good as its doctors. You can you can you can go to the smallest little hospital in the outlying area like like Forest Strand yeah. and have a really good doctor on absolutely and and then that moment it makes it pretty much a good hospital yeah you know so there's no I wouldn't say it's it's based around who's working on the day um so and also we always tend to hate the the hospitals that that treat us the worst and hence we go back to that doctor nurse paramedic relationship. Yeah. You know, they haven't learned to deal with their egos yet. So we have a lot of confrontation. No, listen, there's not enough space in a single room for uh, I mean they say you well, put two paramedics, paramedics in a room and you've got fifty personality clashes. 100%. If I'm not mistaken. Guys, please send us your questions um on WeChat ID Cliff Central. Give us a shout on O eight six one five 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 one eight nine. You can get in touch with me on Twitter, Adam at Adam H M A N is my handle. Let's go to a tune and we'll speak to you just afterwards. Thank you.
Exciting news, MTN are now offering uncapped unradio on WeChat for a limited period. MTN are excited to announce the launch of the new and improved internet services which cater for customers' social, chat and browsing needs. Buy any MTN internet service and stream Cliff Central for free. Uncapped unradio on WeChat for a limited period. T's and C's apply. Go to mtn.co.za for details. And welcome back. We're talking porn. No, I'm joking. Um, we got a message from Brad, our, you know, um, in-house uh, <laughs> uh, medic who, who's uh, an avid listener. We appreciate it. He said that um, from his perspective, you know, um, kind of salaries in EMS aren't what they should be. Um, and especially people who, who love what they do um, aren't getting paid enough. And, uh, I mean, Derek, what do you think? Do you think uh, EMS is a... <laughs> A good career from a financial point of view? Do you think uh, services are paying their medics enough uh, for the work they do? Like, what, what, what's your opinion on it? No, 100%. And obviously, everyone's going to say that we all underpaid, overworked. And but people need to understand that salary is directly proportional to what we receive. So if we bill a medicaid, it's what we receive from the medicaid. Yet again, in my opinion, what you receive from the medicaids, you know, is it, for the work that you do is atrocious. If you, if you look at an average you die, I arrive at high speed in my BMW, thank goodness. <laughs> I resuscitate you. I bring you back to life. You know, you get to build a Medicaid all of like 3,500 rand. So if your life's worth 3,500 rand, you know, don't complain no. when, when no. we don't get there quickly, number one, because, you know, it, it takes money to, to, to roll out resources, equipment. So I think it'll always be an, an issue around, around salaries, and, and I believe we are underpaid. Look, um, I, I agree, and I think, uh, look, I mean, that's the medical aid discussion, and uh, I know uh, at Jonathan Witt on Twitter will certainly have much to say about medical aids, and I'm sure he'll be discussing it during the health hour in the future. Um, but it is an ongoing issue, I think, in the entire health sector, not just pre-hospitally, but uh, I certainly agree. I mean, with that in mind, let's chat about kind of the dangers of being a paramedic, because I think the idea of danger pay in some respects um, is quite relevant. I mean, what... What are the dangers? I mean, besides the fact that, uh, you know, personally, I've written a car off uh, responding to a call, um, placing ourselves at risk. But I mean, what are the what are some of the other things you guys face that, uh, um, you know, shows the world out there that we literally put our lives on the line for patients? No, sure. Well, you you raise the ultimate danger every time we get in that vehicle. You know, we start to put the red lights on. You know, we're totally at risk. You know, if you ever we're also to... totally awesome. I mean, just man, everybody just <laughs> everybody just stop what you're doing right now and just imagine red lights and sirens, and continue. Sorry, yeah. You know, you you you're trying to get to the call as quick as you can. You know, you'd like to, we'd, well, as 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 the more experienced parents would like to think that we respond according to the situation. You know, so and without being emotional, you get a child that's drowned. You kind of you know get a bit heavier on the right foot. You know, yeah. than than going to 
the abdominal pain, you know, that's unconscious, you know, the, the famous unconscious. Yeah. So, you know, FES, which is fluttering eye syndrome. syndrome. <laughs> we Absolutely, love we love that. You know, so it varies, but it, it's the roads that, that are inappropriate. There's no, there's hardly any emergency lanes on these highways anymore. Well, you mean taxi lanes? Well. <laughs> you mean the taxi lane, right? The Shane Rail lane's gone. Yeah, you the Shane Rail lane's gone. <clears throat> you know, there's, 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 the, 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 the emergency lane barely fits our vehicles. The taxi's in the lane. You know, everyone's in the lane except for who should be. So, you know, it, it slows us down. And trying to weave through the traffic at high speed, you know, kind of makes it a bit more dangerous, you know. But not just that. Often we'll, we'll get to an incident. It's a shooting. You know, it's a stabbing. It's Whether it's domestic violence or gang-related, it's irrelevant. There's still a lot of tension on scene. Absolutely, yeah. Tra- I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, we we often, you know, say the phrase, you know, time is life. And at the end of the day, um, seconds count. It's that simple. Um, it takes four to six minutes for a brain to start dying um, without oxygen, uh, without oxygenated blood reaching it. So when we get that call um, for the pediatric drowning or the gunshot chest or the patient who's not breathing, CPR in progress, you're absolutely right. The, the right foot gets heavy and your mind starts thinking that literally if you can get there within enough time, there is a much higher chance of survival. And we place ourselves at risk. And I mean, we've at the moment been focusing quite heavily on the actual responding. The fact of the matter is, I'll, I'll never forget the fact that, you know, the first time I put a drip in in a hospital environment, I was just blown away by the fact that there was good lighting. The patient was lying in a bed. Um, I had a, if I was lucky, I had a nurse or, or a medical student or someone near me to assist me um, with what I needed. First time I put a drip up in the road, I was upside down in a car on the side of the highway in the rain at four o'clock in the morning with a dead body next to me. The working environment that a paramedic faces um, or any member of the EMS is completely different. Um, and I mean, the dangers that come with that, I mean, there are better ways to get sexually transmitted infections and HIV um, than a needle stick. And that's something else we face, let's be honest. No, no, it is a reality. And, you know, in the environment we work in, I think that's that the question you gave earlier, you know, what's like the, the, the key point of what's, what do you thrive in this job, you know? I think those environments are different environments. You know, every single call is different. There's never the same call, you know, twice. So I think that's what the key thing is for us. Yes, and 100% we are faced with, you know, hepatitis, HIV, um, but it's around personal safety. Yeah. It's about, you know... Looking after yourself. I see we've uh, we've got Kimberly on the uh, WeChat who said she was rushed to Millpark Hospital and told that she had an inflamed uterus. She says she was in dire pain and crying but was told she needed to pay a certain amount of money as a deposit before they could even examine her, let alone treat her. And she asks, is this legal? Um, you know, Kimberly, the truth is, is that any hospital has to stabilize a patient. That is That is the law in this country. Um, as per the Constitution, right to healthcare, and that basically means life-saving care. So if a, a person is shot in the chest and somebody drops them off in a car outside a private hospital and they're not a medical aid, the, that hospital is, um, you know, they have to stabilize the patient. However, if it is not a life-threatening condition and a patient is not on medical aid, um, the hospital does have the right to request a deposit, um, a financial deposit, or alternatively refer the patient to the nearest appropriate government facility. Um, I think in the next couple of weeks, we can look at maybe getting somebody from NetCare uh, Hospital Group or even maybe a general manager from Mill Park maybe to discuss the point a bit further. I hope I've given you a little bit of of an idea on that. But uh, um, yeah, sorry, I hope your uterus is less inflamed. Um, It's never nice. 
Uh, I've never had one, thank God, but uh, <laughs> you never quite know. Um, Derek, let's chat about burnout. Um, what is the reality of EMS kind of burnout? Because I've got to be honest, I don't know any paramedics in their 60s. No, 100%. And, and I look around, I think I might be one of the oldest, you know. And best actually, looking. Thank you. <laughs> actually working still on the road, you know. And, and, and there is that element of burnout, you know. And, and burnout seen in, in, you know, your persona, you know, the, the way you go about doing things. You know, you get aggressive, you get sad. You know, a lot of guys reach burnout. Unfortunately, we have had incidents of, you know, EMS personnel taking their lives or attempting to, you know. Just no coping skills or, or a lack of coping skills or no support around coping skills. Burnout's a reality. We all believe that we... Immortal. And, well, now I believe it. <laughs> I use the word. No, but, 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 but I mean, what do you guys true. do to debrief? I mean, do you have formal debriefing? Um, you know, let's say you go to a particularly intense call, uh, which, you know, maybe a, a suicide for one or a drowning for another, or maybe just, you know, a lot of dead bodies strewn across the highway in a, in a big taxi and like whatever it may be for that particular person, what do you guys do to debrief? Well, to be honest, a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of people don't debrief. They don't want to discuss the situation. Everyone's fine. Everyone's perfect. Oh, no, another 10 bodies is nothing. So, you know, and, and it's the accumulation of that that builds up to burnout. And there are individuals who will come and chat to their seniors and say, you know, I don't want to discuss the case. I think a lot of people rely on non-EMS people to, you know, to vent, to almost go through the situation, you know, whether it be family, whether it be a priest, you know, but from a an internal point of view, from an EMS point of view, debrief has never, ever been a big thing. I know a lot of people have tried it. We've had a lot of psych students come yeah. through, you know, and do like almost, you know, a thesis on, on, on EMS burnout. And a lot of people have done research, you know, for, for their masters on, re- on, on burnout. But ne- nothing ever has been formally put in place. It's something a, I'd like to see change. I have to be honest with you. I think that the longevity of the... Um, of the average medic, you know, would be prolonged and their service kind of provision would be improved if there was a formal debrief from a trained debriefer, not like a random, uh, someone who's done a two-day kind of counseling course who cannot relate, but somebody who actually has the skills and means to be able to offer some kind of uh, trauma debriefing. I mean, trauma in an emotional setting is such a varied concept. And I think that, you know, what may be shocking for one is, you know, a different kind of trigger point for someone else. So some people get the visual image of what they see, um, you know, the suicide, the person hanging in their room, um, or the child who's been killed, God forbid, or something like that. Um, but for other people, it's actually having to break bad news. It's having to tell a family member, you know, we've done everything we could. Unfortunately, your loved one has died. I mean, who trains you? Who actually gives you that, or do you just kind of learn from? You get grandfathered in from the guy before you. You know what? What? what how did you learn? Oh, geez, just by doing it a lot, I think. You know, you don't really. Th- there's no way of of being taught how to, you know, to give bad news. It's it's you got to gauge the situation. You know, it, it's very hard. And my my way around is just honesty. You know, tell right. the family exactly what's happened. This is what we've done. What we've done wasn't enough. You know. We're going to stop or we're going to move on to a hospital and decide there, you know, based on what we find. You never get used to it. Um, no one can teach you it. Yeah. There's no book or manual, 100%. you know, on how to spread bad news. It's, it's you as a person. Some people can do it. Some people can't do it. Um, I mean, I must say that, you know, I found in my experience, both in a pre-hospital and hospital environment, 
Um, often if a family's there and you're in the middle of a resuscitation, um, I often allow family members to be in the room. In fact, I encourage it if they want to. It's obviously up to them to watch us make every effort to save their loved one. Um, it also helps, I think, with finality and, and they can oh, see sure, that closure. It, exactly, it, it assists with closure. Uh, let's lighten things up a little bit and go to what is the craziest thing you have ever seen? Oh, the craziest. Jeez, I could be getting people into trouble here. Do it. Do um, it. I think the craziest What have you got to lose, in, Derek, except in, your job? What have you got to lose? <laughs> my, my early days of, uh, of being an actual paramedic, um, I went to a young couple who were doing the intercourse. Doing the, and, uh, they, they were making the sex, of course. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she clamped up on him. Oh. Um, and they were stuck. They were stuck. They were stuck. And um, that's amazing. I, I actually can't think of a better call <laughs> in my life. <laughs> uh, it, it's actually not a joke. I, but I don't just, know who was most embarrassed, me or the patients. But yeah. Yes, so what did you do? I mean, let's. <laughs> what did you do? I mean, after you stopped taking photos and laughing, what did you do? Made a phone call. <laughs> what to, the hell do you do? Yeah, exactly. Now, to tell medical officer at the time and saying, you know, this is what I got. You know, I'm going to go with, with Valium. Valium, you know, yeah, just muscle relaxer. Try to relax her. Yeah. You know, try to relax them both. Maybe play a bit of light music. But how? <laughs> light some candles. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see we've got a couple of people who are commenting on Cliff Central uh, WeChat um, who <laughs> have some interesting things to say about Steve B- Biko. Um, here we've got one saying, Steve Biko's service is shocking. You'll walk in there with a cut on your leg and you'll leave with three diseases. Uh, look, I mean, I can't speak from experience. I haven't uh, worked at Steve Biko. And uh, I will say the following to our listeners out there. In the same way that um, paramedics and doctors, you know, you may have a good or bad experience. I have to be honest. There are some doctors I know who I wouldn't let touch my worst enemy. Um, and I think largely the experience that you have is not just based on the hospital, but rather the medical practitioner on the other side. Um, and, you know, the, the the kind things we were saying about some of the private level one trauma facilities earlier uh, is just because they probably have chosen the right kind of staff to work there as much as the actual uh, facilities abilities. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, based on, on that comment, uh, I would say avoid it. Um, but you never know. I think it's, it might be something that is uh, personality dependent. What are, what are your thoughts of EMS as a career? I mean, if your kids turn around to you and say, Daddy, I want to be a paramedic, are you going to, are you going to go fetch the shotgun and say not in a million years? Um, or do you think it's a, it's a meaningful, good career to go for? Oh, you know, it's, I, think, I think things are going to change in the future. I think with everything moving to higher education, um, going forward, everyone's going to come out with either a degree or a diploma, you know, and the ability to upgrade from that diploma to a degree. So as soon as pre-hospital becomes a degree-based, you know, career. I think it, it may be better going forward. It'll be better from a financial point of view, from an educational point of view. It's hard to say now my kids are still very young, um, but yeah, at the moment I'd say forget it. Yeah, and no, I mean, you know, be a, become a vet. They don't moan as much. <laughs> yeah, but you get to uh, bury your mistakes as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, the thing is, not to say that paramedics and doctors don't do that as well. No, I'm just kidding. The... I think that, you know, becoming a paramedic um, is an extremely rewarding thing to do in that you literally are dealing with people at their absolute best and worst times. Um, And you're there to offer support. I'll never forget, I was doing, when I was becoming a basic life support medic, I hadn't even started my course, to be honest. And I 
worked on a response call with uh, it was Dr. Julian Fleming in those days. And I went out to the first call. And the first call I responded to uh, was out near Kruger's Drop on the highway. There was a um, uh, an African female who had been knocked over, a PVA, pedestrian vehicle accident, while crossing the highway, extremely intoxicated. And I got out the car, walked to the patient with, you know, the lights, the sirens. The whole response there was unbelievable. Um, you know, Nissan Elmira, stage two conversion. Um, and I remember we, 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 we got to the patient and, and she was lying there, you know, she had a, um, a grossly deformed leg and her left breast had been partially torn off. And I took one look at this and I was like, ah, uh-uh, not for me. Cheers, Oaks. And I walked back to the car. Like that was it straight away. Like I literally just turned tail, walked back to the car. And I had one of those God moments where I was about to open the car door. And I had this moment where I thought to myself, look, there's someone there who is in pain. She needs help. I didn't know what the hell to do for her, but I had a decision to make. Either I get in the car and I go home and it's not for me. Walk away for life. Or I go back there and I put on a pair of gloves and I help the doctor or the paramedic with what they need to do. Or I hold her hand. Or I hold the bag, hold the oxygen, do something, anything to relieve this person um, at a time of suffering. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the decision I made. And that's what got me from completing a BA drama honors to deciding to become a doctor. It was that moment. Um, And I think that, like, I really recommend people get involved, whether you go out as an actuary, a painter, a professional and do a level one or level three first aid course or a CPR course, or you decide to become a basic life sport medic um, or do a BTEC and do the full career or become a doctor. I think that there is so much growth and so much benefit in learning about human life. Um, it's it's like doing a psychology degree. It's like doing an action-packed action man degree. It's like um, learning about God, if you believe in God, learning about life, learning about the world all in one. It's an incredible opportunity. And I think um, my kind of take-home message to our listeners out there is um, when you hear those lights and sirens coming up behind you, you know that uh, someone's not just late for an appointment. They're actually trying to help somebody. And do your bit by pulling over, getting out their way, and uh, and and knowing that the guys in there in some form or other are, uh, are heroes. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Derek, I think uh, I just want to thank you and uh, thank you for the, the hard work you've done over the years and for teaching idiots like me what it's like to work <laughs> on the road um, and for all the lives you've saved, which there, there, there are too many to mention. Obviously, the ones you've killed intentionally we're not going to mention on the show. Um, well, at least not by name. Yeah, you know, not by name. Um, there's a couple of cases still open. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, but listen, thanks for the hard work. Thanks for the dedication. Um, and 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 thanks for your your years of wisdom and and training. Um, guys, that almost brings us to the end of the show. I want to thank you all for listening. Thanks for your comments. Uh, thanks for the calls. Remember, you guys can catch uh, Dr. Jonathan Witt next week at this time on Cliff Central for the Health Hour. He'll be back to uh, normal runnings. Uh, wishing him luck. He's uh, doing some good doctoring out in Nigeria at the moment. Uh, wishing the best of luck over there. Um, and I'm sure he'll be kind enough to uh, bring me back if I'm good in the future. Um, but guys, the, the take-home comment, uh, and you can quote me on this, is that 100% of people who breathe air die. So think about it. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheers, guys.